Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science degree and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I'm very excited to introduce my guest today, Mr. Todd Stern, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Seasons Hospice and Palliative Care. Seasons has a presence in 19 states in the U.S., and they provide hospice care, both home-based and inpatient hospice, and palliative care services across the continuum. So, Mr. Stern, welcome. I'm very excited to be speaking with you today. Nice to spend time with you, Lynn. Thank you. So as you know, hospice came to the U.S. in the 1970s. It was very much a grassroots effort, a lot of volunteerism. And as a pharmacist, I can speak to the drugs. Everyone got a ham sandwich, Haldol, Adamant, and Morphine, and that was about it. So I guess you could say this is not your mama's hospice anymore. Would you agree? Oh, yes. There's been a lot of change since the 70s and, okay. and, and since reimbursement for hospice care. So what would you say were some of the biggest challenges for hospice in 2016? Um, even, even slightly before 2016, the hospice industry has gone through a tremendous amount of change. Um, Lynn, you highlight that the um, hospice movement arrived in the U.S. in the 70s. Um, it became a Medicare-funded program in the 80s, and a lot of time has passed since the 80s. And so the government has been looking at hospice and how to manage quality, how to perhaps um, reorganize its payment structure. And, you know, they've been studying hospice for quite a while, and in the last... You know, you know, 20 years, um, hospice has really taken off in terms of adoption. And a lot of that has been because there's been, you know, a cultural um, shift towards accepting the value of hospice that 30, 40 years ago was, 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 was a, a greater challenge. So we've seen utilization of hospice rise steadily over the course of the 2000s. And that, of course, um, caused the government to pause and say, how do we interpret this? What does this mean? And largely, it's a sign of, of, of positive um, uh, trends in that um, folks are valuing the, the gift of hospice towards the end of life. And um, from a quality of care perspective, the government clearly believes that it is positive. But when anything's growing rapidly, um, that Medicare is funding, they, they, they tend to uh, take a moment and really analyze it and make sure that it's not, uh, you know, a negative sign of something. Um, and so what we saw in 2016 actually was the first major change to how hospice care is funded. And the vast majority of hospice care is is really under the level of care routine home care, which can be provided in a, in a nursing home, assisted living facility, or patient's uh, uh, private home. And, and that's where, you know, 95 plus percent of hospice care is provided under that level. Mm -hmm. And the government actually tweaked that level of care from a reimbursement perspective. And it was the first true change to how hospices were reimbursed since the benefit was founded in the 80s. Mm -hmm. So from a hospice perspective, that was a pretty significant change. Um, if you were um, a provider that was in line with um, industry averages, um, you really were largely um, unaffected. Um, the way you are paid is now different. You're paid 17% more under the, for the first 60 days of care on routine home care, and you're paid around 9% less for all days over 60 days. And so if you were within the industry average, um, you were largely unaffected. If you had a lower length of stay than the industry average, you may have 
gotten slightly more reimbursement. And if you were a little bit longer on the length of stay spectrum, statistically, you may be getting a little bit less reimbursement. Mm -hmm. um, I should note that the shift was budget neutral. Uh, the intent was budget neutral. So it wasn't to save the government money, it was to adjust the way in which hospices are reimbursed. And, and, and I suspect um, it was largely driven to better align the government's goals for hospice with the way it's paying for them. The other component that they mixed into that was in addition to getting uh, more reimbursement for the first 60 days and less for any days after 60, you now get an additional payment during the last seven days of life um, for visit intensity. So the amount of care you deliver by nurse and social work services, RN and, and social work services, you get actually an additional payment during the visits that are um, received for the last seven days of life. Of course, nobody can predict sure. the actual death. So it's a matter of providing the right care to our patients always and ensuring that would, would align with the government's reimbursement uh, shift for the, the last days of care um, being uh, paid this, what they call service intensity payment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm actually a big fan of the new reimbursement model. I know that the government has had many, you know, sort of um, concerns that they wanted to um, address within hospice. And I think they did a very nice job at uh, tweaking. And I'm using that word on purpose because no matter where you fell on the spectrum, you may be slightly enhanced or slightly um, um, uh, reduced with this new model. Nobody is, in my opinion, wildly um, harmed or empowered by the new shift. But it starts to affect the way hospices provide care. Now, Seasons has always been a very balanced provider. We've been largely unaffected by this change because we have been focused on doing the right things for the right reasons for a long time. And I, I'm confident that providers that have that same mindset um, will have found themselves in a very similar position. So as far as your question of 16, that was a major change, uh, sure. change that you know, you know, hospice hasn't seen in over 30 years. And so I would say that's probably the biggest um, philosophically, though, um, the, the, the government, and, 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 and predominantly through the Affordable Care Act, and I know we just exited an election period, and there's been a lot of talk around the Affordable Care Act, and so it remains to be seen exactly what happens in the near future. But at present, um, the Affordable Care Act drove a, you know, a major shift in the entire healthcare space, um, not just to ensure uh, working Americans who may not have currently had insurance or could afford insurance or may have been disqualified for pre-existing condition. That's what the media typically focused on. But there were also a number of substantial changes that affected Medicare providers, mm -hmm. um, hospices as well. But the continuum, hospitals, long-term care facilities, uh, other providers within the continuum of care have also seen tremendous change from the Affordable Care Act that has less so been noted by the media changes that relate to accountability for quality, like penalties for hospitals based on a certain amount of readmissions mm -hmm. within a certain period of time from when a patient left a hospital. Mm -hmm. There are a number of carrots and sticks, Lynn, mm -hmm. that have gone into the continuum of care that are actually forcing you know, behaviors or, 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 or focus earlier in patient's disease process that I feel have substantially aligned with the quality and value that hospice provides. Actually, um, 
former CMS director Don Berwick um, coined the triple aim, which is really the focus of, of, of the current, again, we'll see what changes, but the current CMS policy um, uh, directives, which is really to enhance quality and reduce cost and make our community safer. Sure. Well, hospice has always been aimed at those three things. But now, because folks caring for our patients earlier in their disease processes, and we largely depend on for utilization and, 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 and um, 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 referrals to hospice when appropriate, are now seeing their objectives even more aligned with appropriate hospice utilization. Because using hospice appropriately for those eligible and those who desire that level of care will likely keep patients safe in the community and reduce readmission. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, appropriate readmission. And so we're seeing through readmission penalties, which is more of a stick, or carrots like accountable care organizations or bundled payment methodologies, that folks in the continuum of care are actually looking at hospice in addition to its value that has long been recognized to patients and families directly but looking at it relative to what they're now accountable for. Mm -hmm. So that's been an exciting shift um, that we've seen over the last several years mm -hmm. relative to how hospice um, better aligns with the continuum of care as current fiscal policy coming from Medicare mm -hmm. um, is facilitating. A lot of changes. Yes, now those are some of the positives. Okay. Uh, I would add one more positive. Okay. Um, as an industry provider, um, you know, I've been in hospice 16 years. And as you mentioned, Seasons is you know, a, a, a large footprint. So we see a lot of different activity and a lot of different communities mm -hmm. around the country. And one thing that always bothered you know, myself and Seasons as a whole is that hospices did not have a required survey interval. So there were hospices that had been licensed, could have been licensed for 10 years and had never been surveyed. Mm. And what came to pass in the last um, couple of years is, is, a, is, a, is an act that was passed by Congress referred to as the IMPACT Act. Mm -hmm. And the IMPACT Act had a variety of different um, components, but the component that affected hospice was that it actually requires now, legislatively, that a hospice is surveyed at a minimum every three years. Now, Seasons has been committed to more frequent surveying um, independent of this law, and we've actually elected to become Joint Commission accredited, and we're uh, the, the nation's largest Joint Commission accredited provider, and we've been Joint Commission accredited for over a decade. So we've been you know, self-selecting to be surveyed in that level of frequency for a long time, but it's exciting to see that, that the industry as a, as a whole will now be required to be surveyed every three years. And we think that that's not only good from a quality perspective, but it's good to make sure that the integrity of hospice and the value of hospice is preserved so that the Medicare hospice benefit is uh, supported you know, for the next mm -hmm. 30 to 40 years. Absolutely, I, and I think that's a good idea too to ensure that level of quality. So a lot of very positive changes, some you know, relative to aligning Medicare's goals for hospice, mm -hmm. some related to aligning the continuum of care mm -hmm. to better support appropriate, high quality, and efficient end-of-life care mm -hmm. for those that, that are eligible and those that want that level of care, and um, holding hospices accountable, both through the way we're now being paid and both by uh, the required survey 
interval of being a minimum of every three years. Mm-hmm. We have our challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been you know, a number of administrative challenges that have made running a hospice much more challenging mm-hmm. in terms of I-dotting and T-crossing. Mm-hmm. Largely because of you know you know you know behaviors of hospice that may not have been doing everything as well as as, as they should have. Mm-hmm. So the combination of the changes and some of the additional um, administrative requirements, I think, um, while may be um, a distraction some days in mm-hmm. terms of our core focus on the quality of our patients and families' care, mm-hmm. um, I think that you know these changes will ensure that hospices. You know, follow you know you know the path that that the government um, envisions, and again, will ensure our support and the benefits uh, support for the next thirty to forty years. Mm-hmm. We have some general challenges mm-hmm. um, at a time of unprecedented alignment with the greater healthcare continuum. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, physician um, staffing can be a challenge because. You know, as we've seen, you know, tremendous growth of the use of hospice and palliative care in the last 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, we need, you know, high quality practitioners sure. to fuel our support of that demand. And actually, you know, a change occurred in the last several years where in order for a physician to be eligible to become board certified in hospice and palliative medicine, they now have to have a fellowship. Right. And that has substantially slowed mm-hmm. the um, volume of, of newly certified uh, and boarded mm-hmm. uh, hospice and palliative care physicians. Mm-hmm. So we've seen a, a supply versus demand shift mm-hmm. um, relative to board certified physicians. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's been, you know, a, a, a staffing challenge for us. Well, there's the hospice medical director's exam now also. That's true. Which has helped. That's true. But for so long, the board certification, and in many areas of medicine, board certification is a standard mm-hmm. that a lot of our, you know, our, our, our um, patients and families and you know, you know, acute care partners mm-hmm. sort of expect or, or prefer. Yes. So that's a challenge that you know, as a provider, we're certainly working um, through, um, and our and our supporting fellowships mm-hmm. as well. But it has, you know, there's been a a, a shift in the mm-hmm. time frame, and and hopefully that's a one time shift. Mm-hmm. As folks now go through those fellowships in mm-hmm. the next couple of years, hopefully we'll see that 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 delayed. Um, um, development of more certified physicians be a sort of one-time delay, but we, we shall see. Well, I think there's still only about 140 fellowships available in the United States, so I don't see this backlog clearing anytime real soon. So yes. we'll see. Yeah, we will see, Lynn. Um, I, I'm going to choose to be more optimistic. Okay, <laughs> I'll join you in that optimism then. And, and 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 sort of, you know, with respect to other challenges, I'd say, I'd say the biggest challenge that hospices are facing today is that, you know, we're seeing shifts in um, a lot of Medicaid um, uh, plans or, 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 or states uh, moving Medicaid to managed care. And that has all sorts of challenges uh, for all types of providers. But unique to hospice, uh, one of the elements um, that's in the Social Security Act um, that's always been you know, a part of the hospice um, program is that when a patient elects their hospice benefit inside of a long-term care facility, the hospice actually has to bill Medicaid on behalf of the nursing home Mm -hmm. instead of the nursing home continuing to bill direct. Mm -hmm. We actually get paid a reduced amount, Mm -hmm. um, but nonetheless, we bill on behalf of the nursing home, which puts us in a unique uh, position because not only do we have to bill for our hospice services, and those may not even be being billed to Medicaid, Mm -hmm. we have the additional responsibility to bill 
Medicaid for the nursing home services, mm -hmm. and it's a pass-through as it's referred to. Well, with so many Medicaid programs outsourcing Medicaid or shifting it to managed care, mm -hmm. we now have to deal with the challenges of managed care, which mm -hmm. come with all sorts of additional complexities. And to be honest, in the early stages of those conversions, a lot of confusion, even on behalf of those managed care providers. And so there's been a lot of stress administratively uh -huh. to collect and educate these managed care providers because a lot of them are ignorant to why hospices even bill for the room and board. So just because they've taken on this burden yes. of Medicaid doesn't always mean that they're fully understanding of all the nuances. And yes. so we've seen substantial administrative challenges and some sort of unique requirements relative to authorization mm -hmm. that they've asked for that don't necessarily make a whole lot of logical sense mm -hmm. um, once you're educated. But in the meantime, we're sort of at their mercy to keep sort of the wheels turning day to day in our ability to support the pass-through expectations of the government and, of course, our facilities that want to be mm -hmm. paid. It seems like you'd have to hire quite a few more administrative um, personnel to help process all that. Um, Lynn, you're 100% correct. We've had to add a number of staff members. And, of course, you know, we try to focus on taking care of our patients and their families. And, of course, my job is to make sure that our staff are well cared for so they're empowered to do that. So any of these changes, you know, become mm -hmm. a, a distraction or a detraction from our ability to focus as intently on those core objectives of supporting our staff so they can put our patients and families first. So, you know, I always, you know, you know, you know, cringe at, at having to detract or distract myself from doing that. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, you know, it's it's our responsibility. So, Absolutely. you know, those are sort of some of the active challenges, the mm -hmm. Medicaid MCO migration mm -hmm. and the um, physician uh, supply. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I really say, Lynn, you know, the only sort of unknown um, challenge that's sort of um, ahead of us has been this ongoing discussion um, around the Medicare Advantage hospice carve out, mm -hmm. where currently when a patient is enrolled in a Medicare alternative plan, a Medicare Advantage plan, when they elect hospice, hospice actually um, bills Medicare directly. Mm -hmm. And, and um, that is, you know, that has actually resulted in more utilization of hospice for Medicare Advantage beneficiaries than those that are not enrolled in a Medicare Advantage plan. So mm -hmm. that essentially means that we've seen greater utilization, more adoption of hospice for patients who are through a Medicare Advantage plan mm -hmm. than not. Yet there has been, you know, recommendations we've seen from MedPAC and um, it was not a formal recommendation, but it was, it was discussed at the Senate um, Finance uh, uh, Committee's uh, meetings, the, the, the Senate uh, Chronic Care Work Group mm -hmm. was contemplating a recommendation uh, in line with MedPACs that they actually carve in the Medicare hospice benefit through Medicare Advantage. And, and there's, you know, my perception of it is the statistics demonstrate that it isn't broken. We're actually seeing greater mm -hmm. collaboration. So why fix it? Don't change it, right. But if a change were made, you'd see a tremendous increase in workload for a hospice administratively between contracting with all these plans, increased authorization and reauthorization expectations, some fear and ambiguity around what would they pay us, and would a reduced reimbursement rate affect our stability because we manage based on our mix of patients. And 
only 30% of Medicare patients are enrolled in Medicare Advantage. So if we were to have a rate impact on that 30%, could that jeopardize our ability to serve the other 70% that are, that are traditional sure. Medicare? And so between administrative burden, delay in collection, which mm-hmm. could add tremendous financial burdens to our mm-hmm. ability to you know, you know, um, support ourselves from a working capital perspective, mm-hmm. um, authorization burden, and the risk of reduced adoption and our overall payment rates, um, if anything, that's what keeps me up at night. That is concerning. Forward. Seems very counterintuitive. So we've been working both as a as a provider ourselves as well as, as an industry with mm-hmm. the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. We've been working with MedPAC and the Senate Finance Committee directly, and you know we've been um, you know advancing our thoughts and potentially some alternatives um, to perhaps better meet the goals of those recommendations. So I'm hopeful that, that you know, we, we come to a, a good result there, but that's sort of the, the, the um, upcoming unknown mm. that um, I would say is, 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 is you know, you know, what, what I'm you know, focused on as a uh, hospice and palliative care provider um, in the United States. Well, let's hope the cooler heads prevail there. I just have one last question. I know that institutional-based palliative care services struggle to convince administration that their value-added service brings such value to it instead of a fee-based service. Do you see this argument or mindset affecting hospice at all? Well, I'm not sure if I'm fully appreciating your question. Um, I think that um, palliative care has been long studied to reduce cost. Um, in an institution. Um, that, that's been documented many a time by many different organizations. Hospice similarly can provide value because hospice patients and the way hospices are required to deliver services um, allow us to manage patients' um, symptoms more proactively. We're able to provide a certain level of care in a patient's home mm-hmm. and to, in our organization, what we, what we define as seeing around the corner, predicting the disease you know, shift and appropriately addressing those needs to avoid mm-hmm. higher cost hospitalizations mm-hmm. that would otherwise likely happen mm-hmm. or ER visits, you know, and, right. and those types of, of, of interventions that would likely transpire if a hospice provider wasn't involved. And we have that data at present? Oh, yes. Our, our recidivism rates are very, very low. Uh, there have been many studies on hospice and its value. Um, you know, NHPCO, the National Hospital mm-hmm. Public Organization, has published many studies on the cost value mm-hmm. of hospice, um, and it is widely you know, accepted and has been studied uh, many a time as well. That's wonderful. Well, I'd like to thank Mr. Todd Stern. He certainly is a very well-spoken national thought leader in hospice and palliative care. Again, he's the chief executive officer of Seasons Hospice and Palliative Care. Thank you again for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2016, the University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science degree and graduate certificates in palliative care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you. God, I hope that took, that was awesome. So what I meant by that, maybe I screwed up the question is, palliative care teams are trying to prove to administration, yeah, we don't bring in money, um, 